As you find your seat, go ahead and grab a Bible. You can use your own, use one of them in the pew, and open up with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. We are going to be in verses 7 through 11 this morning. So go ahead and make your way there. If you haven't been with us, 1 Peter is toward the end of the Bible, toward the end of your New Testament. If you need to look at the very front of the Bible to find where it is, take your time, get there. 1 Peter chapter 4. Uh, Chapters are the big numbers, verses are the small numbers. Chapter 4, we're going to be looking at verses 7 through 11. Now, last week we jumped back into this book. We had taken a break during Advent season, but we jumped back into this book in which the Apostle Peter demonstrates how Christians are called to stand out among a culture that doesn't know Jesus. We as followers of Jesus should look different. And we told us last week that one of the key ways that this plays out is that Christians have a different kind of ability to fight sin. For the Christian, sin is no longer our master, which means we don't have to give in to every selfish impulse that comes our way. We can say no to sin and at the very same time say yes to a superior kind of joy that is found in obedience to the will of God. So I wonder this week, how did you battle? I hope that you battled. I hope that as you thought about your week, as you thought about sin, and as you woke up every day, you said, you know what? I'm going to arm myself with the mindset of Christ. That's what we talked about last week. I'm going to arm myself with the mindset of Christ who said no to sin, even when it meant suffering and ultimately death. At the end of that text, at the end of verse 6, Peter said that this was not a trivial matter, that, that there was coming a day of accountability, a day where all of us would stand before God, whom he described as ready to judge the living and the dead. Now, it's that thought that connects with what we're going to be talking about today. Because Peter moves from that theme of fighting sin to today, he begins to tell us, if that is all true, this is then how you are to treat one another. This is how you are to love one another. This is what that kind of lifestyle should look like. But it all starts, it all comes down to what we see in verse 7. In verse 7, if you're looking there with me, you will see an important word. And that word is simply this, therefore. I've talked about this many times, but whenever you come to that word, therefore, what are you supposed to ask? What is it therefore, right? Every time you see that word, you need to stop. That word says, you need to stop and think, what, is I, what have I just read? Because everything I'm about to read is built on what I just read. Therefore, says, you can't understand any of the rest until you stop and you understand this one truth. What is this one truth that is going to give light to everything else we read? Read it with me, First Peter 4, verse 7. He says this, the end of all things is at hand, therefore. This one truth sets the tone for everything else we are going to read. He says, the end of all things is at hand. So here's the question that all of us in this room must first process before going on to think about how we're to treat one another. Do any of us actually believe that the end of all things is at hand? Do any of us actually live... As if Jesus is going to return and on that day there's going to be accountability for each one of us. And that day is drawing near. What Peter is saying is you can never live as if I'm calling you to live how I'm going to tell you to live in these next few verses. It requires that you believe that the end of all things 
is near. So what does that mean then? It's a wording that you probably think, ah, I, don't really, I don't really hear that. I only hear crazy people say that. What does it actually mean that the all, end of all things is near? Well, what Peter is saying is that the end of all things as we experience them under the curse of sin is near. He's saying all things as we experience under the, the power of the evil and all of those things, all evil, all corruption, all injustice, all decay, all death, the end of all these things is near. They're coming to an end. You see, from the beginning of time, God has always had a plan of salvation for his people. And if you read the New Testament, if you read the Old Testament, you can see this plan of salvation Weave throughout the scripture, starting all the way back when Adam and Eve first chose sin over obedience to God. You see this plan of salvation woven through the life of Abraham and the calling of, of the people of Israel. You see it as you go into the story of Moses and how he rescued them from Egypt. You see it in the kings. You see it in the prophets. And ultimately, it come to its fruition where? In the person of Jesus Christ. You see it in his death and in his resurrection. You see it in the beginning of the church and the growth of the church. And all of this comes to its fulfillment, this grand plan of salvation, all the way in the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation. And so as Peter takes a step back and he looks at the the course of human history, God's major plan of salvation, when he says the end is near, here's what he's saying. He's saying we are in the final stage of God's grand plan of salvation. When Jesus came and he died and he was resurrected, he ushered in this last age where, yes, his kingdom has broken through. His kingdom is experienced by each of us that have put our trust in him and are changed by him. But the culmination of that kingdom comes when? When Jesus returns. On the day where there is both judgment and salvation. We see the positive side. We see the salvation of this in Revelation chapter 21. When we think about this idea that the end of all these things are are ending, there's also then got to be a new beginning. And that's Revelation chapter 1. I just want to read it to you this morning. This is John as he has a revelation of what's to come. God gives him this. It says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed by, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Same thing Peter says. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Now, if you're here and you have put your trust in Jesus this morning, this thought should be incredibly encouraging to you. What Peter is saying is is that day is at hand. That day is near. That day where you will be with God and you won't just be with him in some abstract way, but instead he says God will be seen face to face. And in that moment, as you look at your great king, he will wipe away every tear. He will make every wrong right. He will bring justice to every injustice. And if that were not great enough, he says, we get to live in a city 
for those of us who live in San Francisco, that should be a good thing, right? A city even greater than San Francisco. A city with no corruption, no evil, no addiction, no decay, no traffic. Praise God, right? None of these things. He says in this new city, we will be with our God. An incredibly encouraging thought. But friends, it should also be a sobering thought. Because what that means is all evil had to be dealt with. The day of judgment had to come. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. He's saying what every other person in the New Testament says, that every person, whether religious or non-religious, whether ethical or non-ethical, whether Republican or Democrat or libertarian or undecided, whatever you are, he says all people will one day give account of their life before God. And he says this day of accountability is not going to come when we didn't expect it. In fact, throughout the New Testament, it says that the day of accountability, this day where Jesus returns, will come like a thief in the night. I've never known a thief to send a text message and say, hey, FYI, I'm coming today, right? By the time a thief comes and you realize that it's too late. I was just sitting there yesterday imagining what that 37 minutes in Hawaii must have been like for those people. They're sitting on the beach enjoying their day. All of a sudden, hey, you're probably going to die. A ballistic missile is headed your way. It's like, oh my goodness. But he says, that's how the day of the Lord is going to come. It's going to come when you least expect it. That day of accountability is coming. It is at hand. The end of all things is near. Now, I realize there may be some of you in this room that say, well, Ryan, Peter said that 2,000 years ago. Is there not like an expiration date that that should have been passed? Is he not wrong here? Well, you need to understand this. What Peter, when he's talking about the end of all things being near, he's not giving you the day that Jesus is coming back, right? We always see that we don't know that day. What Peter is simply saying is the same thing all the other New Testament authors say, that we are in the last stage of God's salvation plan. And we as Christians should live as if Jesus is going to come back at any moment. Our lives should be lived in such a way that we are ready for that moment. Every day that passes is a day of God's grace. We see this in 2 Peter 3, 9. It says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God's timetable is not our timetable. God's not on our schedule. But the fact remains, Peter's truth is just as true today as it was 2,000 years ago. He says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, you should live in such a way, a certain kind of way. So friends, do you believe that the end of all things is at hand? As I was thinking about that this week, I couldn't help but think most of the time when we think about people who believe that, we think about crazy people, do we not? When you hear those words, you probably picture that, that person in, time, in a Union Square with the bullhorn and the sign yelling, the end of all things is at hand, the end is near, right? Or maybe you picture those doomsday uh, preppers, those people that are building uh, storehouses and they're storing up food and getting ready for that end day. Friends, what makes them crazy is not their belief that the end is near. What makes them crazy is how they are responding to that reality, right? Jesus says, the way that you should respond to this reality of my coming 
should look nothing like those things. We don't build bunkers. We don't go to the street corner instead. What does he say? Well, we're going to find out in verse 7 and on. Peter says, if you believe this, you will live in a certain kind of way. And he starts in verse 7. He says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. If you believe the end of all things is at hand, number one, you will be self-controlled and sober-minded. To be sober-minded is the exact opposite of being crazy. Because to be sober-minded is the opposite of being drunk. What happens if a person is drunk? They are not connected with reality. The reality is foggy to them, and it causes them to to lack self-control. They do things that they normally would not do because they've lost touch. They've numbed to reality. Peter says a Christian should be the exact opposite of that. Our minds should be sober. Our minds should be connected with reality to the truth that Jesus is going to return. That the end of all these things is at hand. That there's a day where we're going to look our Savior face to face. He says that's what should be the guiding principle of our minds. And when that happens, what happens? Self-control. Here's the thing. You wonder, why would Peter start with these two ideas of being sober-minded, of being self-controlled? Well, I think it's this. Peter knows that all of us think we have more time. Especially for those of you in this room that are younger college students, young people. You think, I've got all the time in the world. We don't live with the end in mind. And what does that do? It causes us to say, well, I'm just going to do whatever feels right in the moment. Instead of being self-controlled, we go and we live for whatever selfish impulse that, that is driving us in that moment. But Peter says it shouldn't be that way with Christ's people. We are to be a self-controlled people, a sober-minded people. You don't know that you have tomorrow. Too many people think, I can sin And repent later because there's more time. And Peter comes to each one of us this morning and he says, those are the crazy people. The people that think they have all the time in the world, that they can do what they want, they can live as they want, as if there is no accountability. Those are the people that are crazy. The end of all things is at hand. Be sober-minded and self-controlled. Why? For the sake of your prayers. He says, not only does being sober-minded, being connected with this truth that Jesus is returning, cause you to be self-controlled, but it causes you to be prayerful. If you believe that he's at hand, you will be more and more prayerful. Now, doesn't this make sense? I mean, think about it. If you do not believe that Jesus is coming back, if you think you have all the time in the world, then what do we do? We begin to, to, to set our own plans. We begin to say, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. Here's my 20-year vision. Here's my 10-year vision. I'm going to do all of these things, and I'm going to do it under my own power. But if you truly believe that the end is at hand, that you're about to see Jesus face-to-face, what does that do? It causes you to draw near to him. It causes you to press into him, to desire his will, to desire to know what he says in his word, to desire his desires, to desire his power at work in you. We become more and more prayerful. If there's anybody that understood the times more than any of us, it was Jesus. And yet in the midst of the busyness of his ministry, what do you constantly see Jesus do? He draws away to spend time with the Father. He says, Father, not my will, not my plans, but your will be done. If that's true of Jesus, how much more should it be true of each one of us? I've never understood it. I hear people all the time say, I am too busy to pray. Well, if you see that the end is at hand and you're about to meet your Savior, Savior, that sentence makes no sense, right? 
The more busy you are, the more plans that you have, the more you need prayer. The more you need his guidance, the more you need his power to accomplish what he is calling you to do. We become more prayerful. If that's true, it changes the way that we pray for other people too, right? If we know that this day of judgment's coming, that his salvation is at hand, we pray for people and we treat them differently. And that's what Peter begins to go into in verse 8, where he gives us our third call. He says these words, above all. In other words, what he's saying is, this is the most important thing I'm going to tell you. So we need to pay attention here. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. He says, not only do we need to be self-controlled, sober-minded, prayerful, but he says, in your interactions with one another, keep loving one another earnestly. Now, we've talked about this a bit before, so I'm not going to stay here long, but you need to understand that when the Bible talks about love, and especially in this passage, he's not talking about the sentimental, touchy-feely kind of love that most of us communicate when we're talking about this idea of love. If you were to go and read the New Testament in the Greek, what you'll find is that there are many words with different meanings that are all translated by us in our English with this one word, love. Okay? So, for example, you have the word phileo, that we translate love, which in essence means a brotherly kind of love. To have good feelings towards somebody or something, to to enjoy something. It's the kind of love that I'd be talking about when I say, man, I just love spending time with the other pastors and staff members here at First SF. That is a brotherly kind of love, a phileo kind of love. Another word in the New Testament that is, talks about love is eros, which is, a, again, another word that we translate love, but this one is talking more about physical attraction, sexually attracted to somebody. That's eros kind of love. It's the kind of love that you see on these uh, dating reality shows when, after two episodes, these people look longingly into each other's eyes and say, I think I'm falling in love with you. What you should say is, I'm having hormonally charged feelings towards you. That is eros kind of love, okay? It's a different kind of love. But here in the text, he doesn't use either of those words. It's not phileo love. It's not good feelings, sentimental feelings. It's not eros love. Instead, he uses this word agape, which is used throughout the Bible to talk about the kind of love that God has for us. And what separates this kind of love from every other kind of love and what most of the world talks about when we talk about love is that this kind of love is an action. It's a choice. It's not based on feelings. It's not based on circumstances. It's, It's an action. And so when Peter says, I want you to continue loving one another, he's not saying, hey, have good feelings for one another. What he is saying is, serve one another, care for one another, love one another, demonstrate to one another the action of love. Act in love toward one another. And then he adds on this adjective, which I wish he would have left out, right? He says, keep loving one another, just not just loving one another, but love one another earnestly. Again, we talked about this in the fall, but that word earnest means to stretch to the max of a muscle's capacity. The Olympics are coming up, and you can imagine, I love seeing when Olympians give everything they have. They're skiing down the slopes, and then at the very end, what do they do? They just lay down, right? They don't have anything left. He says that is the kind of effort, that's the kind of love that we are to have for one another. 
in the way that we serve one another, in the way that we put the needs of one another in front of our own, we are to do so to the max limit of our capacity. As I think about our church and the church in general, here's the problem I see. It is not that we as a church struggle to love one another. I believe that we as a church do love one another. We serve one another. The problem is that we fail to love one another earnestly. Right? Instead of loving one another earnestly, what do we do? We love one another conditionally. Perhaps some of you, and you think about your love toward others in this body, perhaps some of your love looks like this. I will love you until you no longer meet my expectations. I will love you until you do something I don't like. I will love you until you vote for that candidate. I will love you until you hurt my feelings or you betray me. I will love you until this relationship is no longer beneficial for me. Our love, whether it's in our marriages, whether it's in our church family, whether it's in our friendships with other Christians, our love oftentimes has limits. But Peter says that should not be the case with you. We, more than anybody else, should know a love that stretches to the limits. We've been loved with the love of Christ. Do you realize that the end is near, Peter is saying? Not only on that day where you give an account for how you lived and how you treated one another, but that family, that church family that you sat around, you're going to be with them for eternity. He says, did you love them to the max? Did you go past your limits? Did you go past your boundaries in the way that you love one another? Some of you say, well, I need some practical examples of this. You're, you're, you're realist. You say, I need, I need something to hold on to. Well, Peter gives you something to hold on. What should that kind of love look like? He says, first and foremost, it's a love that covers a multitude of sins. That's what he says in that verse. And what he's saying is this. There are going to be times where other Christians in this room, other Christians outside of this room, sin against you. He says, don't be surprised. There are going to be times where another Christian not only sins against you, but sins in multitude against you. How are you to respond? He says, you are to cover over their action of sin with what? The action of love. You are to cover over their action of sin towards you with your own covering of action of love. He says that's what it looks like to be loving, to cover a multitude of sins. So your spouse isn't meeting your needs like you think they should, like you think you deserve. What does he say? Cover their action with the action of love. Serve them anyway. Be kind to them. Encourage them. Build them up anyway. Somebody says something disrespectful about your racial background or maybe your political ideology. What does he say? Don't cover that action with words of your own that are hate-filled. He says, cover their hate-filled sin toward you with the action of love. Speak well of them. Bless them. Pray for them. Somebody in the body hurts you. He says, cover it with love. Stretch yourself to the max, loving one another in such a way that it covers over sins. Now, I don't speak this and just say, well, hey, this is easy. I know, church, this is hard. In fact, friends, this is impossible if you've never experienced this kind of love yourself. 
But the question then becomes, who among us has experienced a love that covers over a multitude of sins? Who among us in this room has experienced a love of somebody that stretched to the max so that our sins could be covered? Is the answer not every single one of us through the person of Jesus Christ? He stretched himself to the max, literally taking on the death that we deserve for our sins onto the cross. He loved us in such a way that his action of love covered over our action of rebellion and sin in such a way that now when God the Father sees us, he sees his son. His action of love covered over our action of sin. And Peter says, love one another in that same way. I wonder this morning, do you love the other people in this body with that kind of love? This was such a challenge to me. So often my love is conditional. I confess that this morning. But I long to love people in the same way that Jesus has loved me. He moves on in verse 9 and he shows us another thing. He says, your love should look like this. Verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. He says, so not only will you be loving, but also you will be hospitable. Now, I'm going to stay here for just a moment because I truly believe that this is the one, of, one of the most important teachings for the culture of America today. To show hospitality means to open your home and your life with joy and eagerness. Okay? Hospitality means to open your home and your life with joy and eagerness. And it especially relates to those who are not related to you. Now, do you show hospitality to your family? Yes, but that's the expectation of culture, right? But what he's saying is even the stranger, even the person that has need, he says, do you open yourself with hospitality without grumbling? Statistics show that here in America, people are having friends over to their house less and less. You've probably experienced this some in your own life, but all the statistics show the more social media grows, the less people are having other people into their home where they have face-to-face interaction. Uh, About a year ago, Rachel and I and a a couple members of our church who live on our street decided we need to go against that trend. And so we decided to throw a neighborhood party. We uh, got the party ready. We wanted to invite neighbors into our home. We Put, it, put together little invitations. And then I took our three kids because let's just be honest, people are going to be much more welcoming and coming if I've got three kids and if I'm just standing there by myself. So I took our three kids and I had them hand the invitation to all of our neighbors, inviting them to come over. We literally had no idea how many people would come. We didn't know if anybody would show up. Well, to our surprise and real enjoyment, we had over 30 neighbors come to our house to that party. And one of the things that struck me more than anything else is that I heard the same conversation take place over and over and over again. And that conversation was this. I've been in this neighborhood X number of years, and I have never been in a neighbor's home. Never. I've seen that person hundreds of times, but we've never had a conversation. I've wanted to do this for many, many years. We've just never done it. You see, even sincere desire to show hospitality is very difficult for us to act on, is it not? I truly believe almost all of you are very sincere when you say, I want to get to know the other people in this church family. I see them. I want to get to know them. You go to them and you say, hey, let's get together for lunch. Let's get together for dinner. And you're sincere. I truly believe that. And yet what happens? Far too often we settle for surface level relationships. 
something comes up, we've got busy week, we've got stuff going on in our family, and we fail to make that call, we fail to extend that invitation. What happens most of the time, though, is not that we just fail to do that. The greatest problem, I think, when it comes to hospitality and our lack of hospitality, it's not just the culture around us. If we're honest, let's be, let's be real this morning. I'm talking to myself as well here. The problem with hospitality is that it highlights our idolatry. Here's what I mean by that. When you think about our homes, our homes, like everything else in our life, were given to us as a gift, right? And let's not just forget, I mean, most of us have homes that the world around us, you go to most of the countries of the world, would only dream of having. They're given to us as gifts. And one of the key themes that you see throughout the Bible is that every blessing, every gift that God gives is not meant to stop with us. If we receive a blessing, it is meant to be a blessing to others. So what happens? We have our homes, and and our homes are a place of great refuge. They're a great place of solitude. They're a great place of retreat, right? That's not a bad thing. It's a shelter. That's a good thing. It's a gift from God for those purposes. But here's the problem. When we say, you know what, I'm going to keep all those things for myself and my family. That gift that you've given God, instead of using it as I've been called to use it to bless and to serve the other people in this church family, I'm going to hoard it to myself. That peace, I'm going to hoard it to myself. And we begin to look to our homes as if they are God. We go to our homes for peace. We go to our homes for joy. We go to our homes for satisfaction when they were never meant to be that. They were meant to be a gift that was stewarded to bless other people. Does that make sense? The reason we are oftentimes not hospitable towards others is that we don't want to give up our God. We don't want to open our lives. We don't want to open our homes because it's a place for us. We make it a shrine to self. But what I want you to see in this passage is that this is not a spiritual gift. So many times I think we think of hospitality like a spiritual gift. And what does that do? It says, well, some people have to do it, but I don't. Well, Paul does not, Peter does not say it's a spiritual gift. He says, all of you are to show hospitality to one another. And what really takes away all of our excuses is when you realize that he's writing to a church who is in the middle of suffering and persecution and even the threat of death. These people, if they were to open their home to other Christians, what do you think that does? That puts a spotlight on them. And yet Peter doesn't back down. He says, you open your home, show hospitality to one another. When you look at the life of Jesus, where do you oftentimes find him? In the homes of other people. He's in the home of sinners, of tax collectors, of Pharisees. He's in the home of his disciples, of his friends. Everywhere he goes, he's in homes. Why do you think that is? Well, I truly believe it's trying to show us something. There is ministry and transformation that happens in homes that cannot happen anywhere else. You see, when you think about the most important relationships of your life, the most important friendships, the most transformative relationships, did not oftentimes those things take place in the context of a home or a dinner table where you're having conversation, where you're really getting to know somebody. When I look at my life, almost every transformative relationship I have was centered in this idea of hospitality, where they opened up their life to me. 
You see, it's very, very easy to serve one another from a distance. It's easy to hand out a bulletin on a Sunday morning. It's easy to sing in the choir. It's even easy to give money to people. Why? Because that does not require relationship. But hospitality, on the other hand, requires deepening relationship. You open your home to somebody, you can't help but get to know them better. The problem oftentimes, though, is what? This becomes messy. Relationships are messy. Having people in your home is messy. Ask any of our community group leaders. It's messy. Dishes get broken. Food gets spilled on the carpet. Late nights, hard emotional things that happen in people's lives. You're pouring out your time and energy. And I think that's why Peter adds those words without grumbling. Because he knows it's hard. And yet he still calls us to this because why? It's in the midst of hospitality that the grace of God transforms lives. Transforms your life. Transforms the lives of the people that you are serving. The reason I, this matters to me and the reason I've stuck here for a little bit this morning is that I believe our congregation will only be as open and transformative as your homes are open and transformative. I truly believe that. If you do not practice hospitality, then our church will, in essence, be closed off to people. Our relationships will only stay surface level. So here's the question this morning. For those of you that are families, when is the last time you invited a person who is single into your home to have dinner with your family? To our Individuals who are single. When is the last time you opened up your apartment or your house to a family with their kids and their grimy hands that are going to break your stuff? When's the last time you invited them over? When is the last time you gave up your Sunday afternoon uh, regular planned nap and your lunchtime with friends and family to meet somebody new in this congregation and say, hey, will you come and have lunch with me? When's the last time? When's the last time you opened your home to somebody that was different than you? Different color of skin, a different socioeconomic background, different ethnic background. When's the last time you opened your home in that way? Peter says, if we're going to be transformed, it requires hospitality. Do we show hospitality with any kind of consistency? Do we have people in our homes at least once a month? I think that's what this text would call us to today. We're going to conclude. Verses 10 and 11 says this. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. He ends in this way. He says, also be service-minded. Be service-minded. When he talks about gifts, I think most of the time when we hear this idea of gifts in the New Testament, our minds automatically go to spiritual gifts, right? But that's not what he's talking about here. While he may very well include the spiritual gifts that Paul mentions in Romans and Ephesians, other places, he's talking about a wider scope. He says, everything that you have is a gift. And he's asking the question, are you being a steward of that gift? Are you using that for God's purposes? Or are you hoarding that gift for yourself? When you think he's about to break it down, what does he do? He just tells us two things. Do you speak? He says, well, then speak as if your words are from God. Do you serve? Serve as with the strength that God provides. He says, whatever you do, in essence, whether you speak or whether you serve, you do for the service of other people. 
His point is very simple, that we are to use the gifts that we have, every single gift, to serve one another. You don't need training for this. You don't need seminary. You have everything you need. He says, simply use the gifts that you have. Can you teach? Teach for the benefit of other people in this body. Are you good with numbers? Use that gifting for his kingdom. Are you good with, are you good with uh, the, the court of law? Are you uh, good at technology? Are you a painter? Are you a creative? Are you, do you do this? Do you do that? Whatever gift you have, use it in the service of the people in this congregation. For the Christians around the world. Here, there, use your gifts to benefit others. He says, when you do so, your life will spill out in worship to God. When you live in these ways, when you love in such a way that you cover a multitude of sins, when you show hospitality, when you pray for one another, when you, when you serve one another with all the gifts that you have, he says, it will resound in praise to God. Verse 11 in order that everything God may be glorified through Christ Jesus. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. First, I said, family, I don't know about you, but I want to be part of a community that loves in this way. I long for the day where I don't have to invite new people into our house because they've already been invited by 10 other church members into their house. They're already connected. They're already in the, the community life of this church. I long for the day where when we get our feelings hurt, we don't just run from church community. We won't just leave the church, but instead we go through the hard work of covering over that sin with the action of love. Where we're quick to forgive one another. We don't hold grudges with one another. But we pray for one another. I long to be this kind of church family, but it will only happen as we draw near to God. As we realize the end is coming, the end of all things is coming. We are about to be with Christ face to face. Therefore, we want to live wholeheartedly for his kingdom, which means we have to live wholeheartedly for the sake of one another. That is my prayer for our church. This morning, may we lean upon him and take steps of repentance in those areas that we fall short. And when we take steps forward, steps of obedience, and acting on what he's called us to do. This is not one of those sermons where you can think, oh, that's a good thought, and then do nothing. What action step is God calling you to take?